Welcome to episode number 40 of The Tactical Guitarist, the show that covers stories, wisdom, and insight into surviving and thriving a career in music as a guitarist. I'm your host, Jesse McCann, and in this episode, I am speaking with the legendary guitarist, composer, and artist, Andrew York. For most guitarists, classical guitarists, uh, today's guest needs no real introduction, but here are a few important words just in case you don't know who Andrew is. Hailed as one of today's most loved composers for classical guitar and a performer of international stature, Andrew York blends the styles of ancient eras with modern musical directions, creating music that is at once vital, multi-leveled, and accessible. York is a Grammy nominee and award winner, earning that accolade during his tenure as a member of the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet. His compositions have been featured on Grammy-winning recordings uh, by Jason Vio and Sharon Isbin, along with recordings by other legendary guitarists such as John Williams and Christopher Parkening. He's released albums on Sony US, Sony Japan, King Records, Telarc, GSP, and Delos labels, as well as inclusion on Rhino Records, uh, Legends of Guitar, and numerous other compilations. His authenticity has inspired a worldwide following, with his touring schedule spanning more than 30 countries, including Rome, Lima, Beijing, Ankara, Munich, Manhattan, Finland, Estonia, Lithuania, and Japan. Generations of younger guitarists have made Andrew's music a staple of their repertoire in their performances and studies. His works appear in print worldwide uh, through multiple publications, multiple publishers, and his extensive background as a jazz and even rock guitarist has allowed him to cross over stylistic boundaries with an unusual authority. Andrew has recently launched a new guitar lesson series called Andrew's Den. We talk about his new adventure along with his history, creativity, his love of mathematics, and the impact it's had on his musicianship and compositions, and much, much more. It was an honor to speak with him, and I hope you all enjoy. So let's dive in. My guest today is Andrew York. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, My pleasure. Great to talk to you, Jesse. Yeah, um, we're uh, recording during some very unusual times, but uh, um, it's, I think, a a very sort of uh, almost uh, opportune time to talk about some of the things uh, you're up to these days. Um, So I'd like to get into that uh, a little bit later on, but I'm hoping we could uh, start the way I I do with all guests and... um, Maybe just talk about how, um, you know, way we could go way back and talk about how you got started. I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, how you came to the guitar, you know, who, who people were that kind of influenced you in those early days and um, just, you know, what your origin story might, might be. Yeah. Well, I come from a musical family and my father played guitar. My mother sang professionally for a while. Um, and my uncle was a fine guitarist and singer as well. Still, he's still a singer in a choir. So there was always music around and uh, we'd have family sing-alongs and they'd do folk music from um, like the Burl Ives songbook. A lot of people don't know who that is now, but he was kind of a repository of like folk music and did lots of records. He had a great voice. Sure. And also we knew just, I don't know why, but through uh, learning songs, my father and uncle knew songs from the Civil War um, from old English, you know, from English, English folk songs and some uh, Scottish and just all kinds of stuff. Um, I yeah. still know probably a hundred of these things, you know, I, they're in my <laughs> memory because that's what I started with. So um, my, I would pretend to be playing and then they would, um, in these sing-alongs and they looked over one day when I was about six and I was playing because I was watching them and I got the chords. I don't remember that, of course, but they said, well, wow, he's actually playing along. And so my dad started teaching me and I absorbed it super fast. So they got me a classical teacher uh, right away in, in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And I studied with a wonderful German woman named Greta Dalitz. And she was my first classical teacher to get my technique together and teach me, you know, more advanced things. That's interesting. You know, you, you get this, your parents have a sort of folk, your dad a folk back, background and, and your mom's a singer. And yet they they put you in in classical lessons. Uh, was there any reason for that? Or was that just kind of what was available? My dad loves or loved classical music. He um, had it on all the time. The radio was always running a classical station. He had lots of classical records, and he he wished he could have been a classical player, but of course he didn't have a chance to study or do anything like that. But that was his his love. He just loved it, and so I was exposed to that from the beginning. And you know, as soon as I could play well, his 
you know, default positions, well, get, get him some classical training. That's the, the best thing you can do. Cause he yeah. was a, you know, he, he loved playing, but he was a little frustrated. He knew his limitations, even though he loved what he did uh, as an amateur player. He even made like a 78 record when he was young. I he found a copy of it. It was kind of broken up. We could play a little bit of it. I didn't, he didn't even tell me that. I found it a few years back. Oh, wow. Like, like yeah, we cut one of those things. It's amazing to me. So, yeah, yeah. I, w- I wish I had it. I don't have a copy. I don't know what happened to it now that it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, so did you... Uh... You stick with it, you know. This was probably how old were you then? When I started taking classical, I'm not sure seven, maybe, or or something like that. Or yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure Fairly exactly early, when though. they launched me in, but you, definitely early. Yeah, I was a kid, yeah. you know. Yeah, and uh, you stuck with it. It did. Uh, you study it through, you know, high school and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I did. I, um, you know, when puberty hit, um rock and roll got really interesting. I mean, I loved rock and roll and classical music. I can tell you that, um, you know, when my uncle, the guitar player and singer went to Vietnam, he, he was a pilot in Vietnam and he, he left his, he said, can I leave my record collection here? And, you know, my parents agreed. And I was like, yeah. So I actually had it in, in my room, just hundreds of records, um, you know, my dad's stuff and, and my uncle's. And I would just peruse them like with fascination everything i would listen to everything i didn't necessarily like everything but if it was interesting i would like it and i found almost all of it interesting i was listening to stravinsky to Sousa marches i became obsessed with beethoven uh (laughs) you know and and i liked uh um well handle of course but uh well there were so many but beethoven I, i would wear out the records my sister bought me the ninth symphony with leonard bernstein conducting i wore it out she bought me another copy (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, I was just always listening to this stuff. But so at the same time, of course, I remember I was, I think 10 or 11 or something when Abbey Road was released when it came out, the Beatles. And I, that was the best thing I ever heard in my life. I would listen to that over and over. So I, I was very eclectic with my listening as long as it was, you know, good. I loved it. And of course it was so much good music. Um, I was saying when puberty hit, then rock and roll, I had to do that. So I, you know, then I bought like, a, you know, an Ampeg V4 stack and a Stratocaster and a Les Paul. And I was playing in, in bars when I was about 15 and very loud. And, you know, but I was a very good rock and roll player. So I kind of, I still studied classical for a while, but I didn't, I kind of lost interest in really doing that work. I wanted to be a good rocker. And uh, so I, even though I still played nylon string and I would play classical pieces at home for fun, I wasn't really studying at that period. And then when I was 17 or so, 16 or 17, I got into jazz and I renounced rock and roll playing it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I still love to listen to it, but it, like yeah. I wasn't going to play it anymore. And I'd started studying jazz with a great player from the Airmen of Note that was the uh, Air Force big band. Okay. Uh, guy named um, Rick Whitehead. Fantastic guitar player. Yeah, a friend said... Uh, the Airmen of Note are playing on the Capitol Steps in D.C. You want to go hear them? And I'm like, sure, you know, because we played coffee houses together, this friend of mine. Yeah. So we went up there, and the Airmen of Note, a big band, you know, with you know trumpets, trombones, saxes, and then rhythm section. And it just knocked me off the, you know, off my chair. I couldn't believe what I was hearing because I hadn't heard big band music before, and that was it. That was the reason. I, I'm, I'm going to play jazz. So from that moment, I became a a serious jazz player. And I studied that for years with some wow. of the best players in the world. Um, many people don't know that, uh, but it's, uh, I studied with Lenny bro and Joe DiOrio. These are legends. Uh, when yeah. I moved out to LA, yeah. I was studying with them. Uh, so I have, I have all that knowledge and I was just a real serious bebop player. I studied it just like crazy. And, um, I did that for a long time. And then I kind of decided I didn't want to be a jazz player though. I, I, really honored all the knowledge because it, it, it was just vast for me. So, so I had this kind of great multi-stylistic thing, you know, I, where I, I kept the classical thread, even though it would dip down, but you know, it would always reappear and I would continue my studies. Um, but then I, I became a very good rocker and a very serious jazzer. So I, I really did styles in ways that I don't know anybody else that's done it to the degree that I, that I have, I just really became obsessed and absorbed in different styles and I would go very far uh, and then and it assimilate that and make it part of my composing and playing voice yeah so when when did you start uh, 
when if you can remember uh, when did you start writing music uh, from the moment i could play it was yeah. you know i i it's just a personality thing i'm driven to create that's my uh -huh. what i want to do in life more than anything whether it's you know painting if i cre create paintings or write stories or you know drawing i've tried it all and i try to do it all well or you know I, I write computer software. I got really into that, and and I like making new software that does things that I want it to do. It's very similar to composition. So right. composing music was obvious. You know, I, I have a, I have an ear that's a little unusual. I mean, I, when music plays for me, it lays itself out kind of in a three dimensional structure, it's synesthetic. So you know, you know the word synesthesia. I'm sure yeah. you, you hear this a lot, but to me, it's, they, I only hear really simplistic versions where someone says, you know. Beethoven tastes like caramel or, you know, I see blue when for me, I see, you know, very intricate geometric crystalline structures that I can control how they, how they grow. I can like, you know, make them manifest in different ways, but they, they, you know, I can hold them and move through them. And so it's very easy for me to hear what the music is. It kind of lays itself out for me in terms of what the harmony is and what inversions, you know, where everything is, I can kind of see it. It's like a landscape. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, it's a good, good skill for a composer to have. And so the music yeah. to me, it, it, it gives me um, much more data when I hear music than the average person or even the average musician, you know, it's Interesting. I just, I yeah. hear, you know, a pop song comes on and my, I have a, a, a daughter is about to be 12 and she's really into pop music. And she's very interested in seeing how I, do you like this one, Papa? Do you hear auto tune? She asked me all these questions and I say, well, that one's, that was pretty good. It's got a nice groove or that's immensely boring. Why? Well, <laughs> listen to it. I, mean, I tell her what the chords are, the inversions and, you know, yeah. the melody does this, the melody does nothing. You know, there's only one unusual moment where they sing like a ninth over the four chord. You know, I just, cause it's all there. I hear it. There it is. I can tell you. So yeah. anyway, yeah. So that makes, I don't know, having that and hearing music the way I do is even as a kid, I heard the same way, um, you know, that makes me, I think, want to create music that's interesting for me. I mean, who else can it be interesting for? I really only write for myself. Yeah, uh, right. And so there's a lot of structures in there that I think people aren't aware of. Even this pieces that sound some, somewhat simplistic, I've created them in a way that have this crystalline structure that pleases me. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of amusing to me. I, I know that uh, a lot of that stuff is just not going to be perceived. So, but but people do perceive the beauty, and that's that's enough for me. I really like when people appreciate the beauty and the the patternistic integrity, and they respond to that emotionally. That pleases me greatly. I like to communicate beautiful ideas. Right, right. There's there seems to be, I mean, from my experience of just studying music and and playing it on guitar, um, and knowing different composers too, just. Um, you know, there's the, there's that deeper level that perhaps you're, what you're talking about that, that we will may, we may never actually fully understand that only the composer knows the kinds of secrets they've buried into the music. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes that's right. interesting you you know you've got this um this drive this kind of creative drive um I, I was reading on your bio and i've kind of known uh, bits of it for a while but just that you have these other these other areas that you explore um and you know we're gonna i'd like to talk about it how it relates back to a couple of your pieces but um i just want to know a little bit more about where the um the ideas came or, or i should say the interest came to be you know to to look into computer programming for instance you know there's a there's a i i for one can understand the the correlations between that and composing but i'm wondering if maybe you could maybe expand on that a little bit more 
Well, a brief aside to that, it turns out that guitar players make really dandy programmers. There's something about uh, the geometric quality of the fingerboard. I think it uh, attracts, first it attracts people that are kind of geometric, whether they know it or not, because we make shapes much more than most instruments that are across a two-dimensional fingerboard. Also, I think years of doing that, if you have the skills already, it really develops them. And it's a way of thinking that's very beneficial for programming. Um, I've known many fine guitar players that went on to become very well-paid programmers. You know, and yeah. Kudos to them, you know, better than being <laughs> trying to make a living in music. But, <laughs> you know, for me, I when I was in high school, you know, and deciding my path in life, it was either music or science. Turned out I was um, kind of precocious in science. I think I, it, between fifth and sixth grade, I went to a summer camp. I took a, some test they gave to the school, and the only in the whole school, only two of us were offered this position, and the other guy didn't want to do it. And I said, "I'll do it." And it was a, a summer science camp where we did, you know, college level ma- uh, maths and things like that, and, and did various disciplines from biology to physics. Um, I think when I was like ten or eleven, so I was really good at that stuff, and I, I've always been deeply fascinated with science and tried to keep up with it as best I can. So I was either going to be a physicist or something like that, or a musician. And I chose music, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think about it. Yeah. Because just the, it was just saturated with, with beauty in a way that, I mean, so to me was science, but, but there was just something very direct and communicable about the beauty I, I perceived in music. And I was very, very drawn to that. So that I made that my path. And then I just have kept up, uh, my interest in science. I'm very much an amateur mathematician and, and physicist. I, I like to, you know, read about it, think about it all the time. Yeah. So that's, that's really one of my deepest passions. So the programming just grew out of that because that's very much a scientific pursuit to me. It was a way of thinking that was, you know, kind of mathematical and just how to, problem solving. Sure. It's, I'm just fascinated by this. I have a brother who's into, you know, he's a, uh, he was a computer scientist and now he's, he's being in, you know, works in the tech field and everything. But aside from that, uh, I did a little bit of my own exploration of computer programming several years ago as I was getting more into uh, online teaching and, you know, creating websites and all this stuff. And, um, uh, I just, it's, it's fascinating to me to hear another musician talk about it, um, from a place of, uh, of interest, but also draw, sort of finding these these relationships between that and music. You know, programming is all about logic, and and you know you got to make all these steps have to be right in order for the for the software to run right. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, Not a comma yeah, out of place. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The the wrong uh, command will send it crashing. Um, you know, the one piece that comes to mind is the most recent work, more recent work, I should say, the, uh, the equations of beauty, where your love of mathematics sort of uh, seems to play a, a big role in the uh, the titles of the of the movements and perhaps uh, like you said you know more of the interwoven uh, structures of the music I'm wondering if you could maybe if we could tie that in a little more if you could talk about how that piece came about and um, and maybe how the your your you know your sort of fascination with math and science uh, played a role well I had an idea a few years back um, I thought it would have made a great novel that I didn't write. Yeah. But the idea was that um, a scientist or a mathematician figures out how to describe beauty with equations so well that any work of art could be translated into another medium with full integrity. And I thought that was, I mean, I mean, maybe no one would be interested in reading that, but I could imagine being written in a way that would be cool. So a painting could yeah. be analyzed, turned into equations, and then made into an equivalent piece of music that would have the same level of beauty and communicable, communicable patterns. I just thought that was an intensely interesting idea to me. But then I realized it's a book I'm never going to write. So um, when I started writing this piece, I thought I'm going to call it Equations of Beauty. And at first I thought I would name each movement for uh, uh, like a famous equation or formula. And then I realized that's not going to work. So I refined it to just each movement being named for a constant so it just has one character and i liked that much better <clears throat> now i didn't use i do sometimes very much put technical things in music but carefully in a way so it doesn't sound intellectual and dry 
you know, it has to can yeah. only support the, the patterns that I perceive as beautiful. Um, so I didn't actually um, put much in there from mathematics into the suite itself. I, I use the constants as inspiration and each one of them has a real fascinating backstory and use. The things that the constants represent are, are really amazing. So I used each one of those six constants to sort of illuminate those movements. Yeah. Um, and so this is like, is it to be perceived as one big work or is it, uh, is it just, you know, the, you've got movements, obviously, is it, uh, is it kind of a, th for, for us to sort of, uh, appreciate or maybe get some better understanding of it, listen to the entire work or is it, is it meant to be kind of, you know, different pieces at a time? The entire work, the, many of the movements are ataka, which if your listeners don't know, means they just immediately go from one to the next with not really a pause. Um, and they're meant to be in that order because often the same idea will begin the next movement and then turn into something completely different. But so there's very, very much an interwoven thread among most of them. And it's, it's a 26 movement work as a whole. And the six movements should be one after another. some of the uh this esoteric topic of of creativity um you know there's a lot of different guitarists listen to this podcast and uh you know electric guitarists classical guitarists crossover um etc and one of the things that uh perhaps we i don't spend a lot of time talking about because i don't have a lot of composers on the show um is this notion of creativity and why it's important in our lives. Um, even if, you know, we have people who are, are just simply classical guitarists who play other people's music, even, even for guitarists in that category, um, what are your thoughts on how important it might be for us to have creative outlets? Well, I guess that would be a different question, having creative outlets and creativity in general. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, cre a creative outlet can be something that, that, uh, like a hobby or something that is not necessarily intensely creative for the person, but it gives them great rewards in their way they spend their time. So, I mean, not to, you know, uh, be too picky, but I mean, just that that's, it's a can of worms in a way. So what I would say that creativity is, you know, it's part of life. I mean, in a way life is dynamic and always changing and creativity is, uh, essentially an appropriate response to being alive. Yeah, I've never really thought of it that way, but when I, it was now that you ask that, that's, I think a pretty good answer. Um, yeah. And some, and people have ideas about their creativity or lack of it. I think everybody has the potential for creativity. I mean, some have it in very, you know, huge amounts, um, and some don't some repress it. I don't know. I don't really understand other people. I don't know what they do, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm creativity. What, what bothers me in a way is this, is, uh, how basically non-curious most people are and they kind of circumscribe their lives. And so they're in, in very small ways and do the same things everyone else does. And they'll do the same things themselves that they always do. And seem to have no interest in going farther afield. I think of me as a kid with all these records, listening to all of them. And what I don't understand is why most people at some point in their lives don't wonder, well, what does music sound like that was written 400 years ago? What was the world like? What was it like politically, creative, you know, creatively? But most people in their whole life don't ask those questions. They don't have any interest. And that's just one example. I mean, also literature or painting. I, I don't get it. So... To me, that goes hand in hand with creativity, 
you're that's an, an exercise in creativity is an insatiable curiosity to see what has gone on before what is happening now and what you might do to express yourself in a unique way not for the sake of being unique but just letting your actual essence illuminate what you do so that to me is creativity and some people seem to repress that or don't allow it to come forth i i think that most people do have it but it just it doesn't seem to be expressed much yeah and for those uh you know for those of us who are trying to express who are trying you know the, those guitarists out there or musicians uh, artists um i was i was having a conversation with a, a student uh, a few weeks ago that you know he was feeling a bit a bit uh paralyzed you know like he just didn't know what to do he, he's sort of like an equivalent of what writer's block might be and i said you know, i said you know why don't you try why don't you try limiting how much you can do <laughs> you know yeah. and see if that helps you know you know i was wondering like what are your thoughts on on something like you know where this idea of we get option paralysis sometimes because there's just too many choices um you know too much create you know creative freedom it sounds like an oxymoron to me to say creative freedom because you just <laughs> sometimes we need to we need to have these parameters at least to, from my experience i was wondering if if you know if you come at it that way or if you teach that those same similar kinds of concepts well you're right on the money you obviously know quite a bit about this because um too much information or options can can you know, basically block you. So I remember in high school being told something like this. There was a, it didn't happen to me, but I remember reading about it. a student had a paper to write and couldn't write a, a word, uh, you know, like something about the history of the school or something. And so the day finally came and, you know, she was in tears. I, I have no idea how to start. And the teacher said, come with me and took her outside and said, see that brick wall, that, you know, wall of the school, start there and she says I, I can't and he said see look up there the upper left brick start there right about and and then it just started flowing for her he he limited it so much down to one brick of the school just to get and that somehow focused her mind and allowed her to begin and for myself i noticed that um <clears throat> i do a lot of sketching when i compose i mean mm -hmm. uh, musical sketching i and and what i find very helpful is to limit the information that I sketch from. So I might have a, a, a an A theme that I like a lot, and, that, and now I want to create the rest of the piece. And that's often where people <clears throat> have trouble. I can come up with a nice idea, but then what? So what I'll do is I'll look at the structure of it, you know, the way it's uh, the contour of the melody, the way the harmony moves, the rhythms, look at all just the aspects and assimilate that, then often pull out a cell. Maybe it's only three or four notes. Maybe it's just a little rhythmic figure and run with that and sketch it in just as many ways as I, I can imagine and can't imagine stuff. I yeah. know it won't even fit into the piece, but just run with it and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And to me, that's the same idea as limiting it to one brick, just taking one little, little cell, one germ of an idea and just expanding that beyond belief, just letting it just, you know, explode into different dimensions that keeps me very creative and also keeps me from descending into formulaic writing hopefully and because i'm always expanding out way farther than i need to go just to see if it takes me in new directions or gives me ideas that are somewhat fresh uh, yeah. so I, I would try to go way beyond boundaries instead of always staying within them output in terms of your compositions your your guitar compositions and you know they've been played and performed and recorded around the world by hundreds of people um you know your music is categorized often as a kind of classical crossover and i wonder if uh, if you if you kind of gel with that idea or if that's something that you know sticks, sticks out to you in some way or 
Um, or even if you could explain what that means to some of our listeners, because, you know, we hear these tunes, on, especially when I, like, I listen to your recordings and they're, they're on the classical guitar for the most part. And um, I just think of them as classical guitar music. But I am wondering if maybe you could uh, maybe enlighten us on that idea of the classical crossover and how that might relate to some of the other guitarists that listen. It's a big one. Categories. Yeah. I yeah, mean, category. Like, right. How would you define classical guitar music? What is it? Right. You know, I'm yeah. serious. Like what is the first because people, you know, everyone has opinions and, uh, and will will judge music, you know, and just, and decide what category they think it belongs in. But I don't personally like categories though. I know we need them in life, but yeah. truly creative people never fit into categories. They just don't. The, yeah. the, uh, more modestly endowed composers fit often very nicely into categories and they often get more attention because they're easier to manage for marketing and for pe people to understand. Of course. that I mean, you know, it, it, when I think of the, the people that I think are really creative, like, a, you know, maybe a Miles Davis or a Pablo Picasso, they, they weren't pegged so easily. They were always pushing beyond what, the also rands were doing which were following along what the trends were at the moment but then suddenly miles comes out with the record it's like whoa what's that yeah you know and then everybody changes you know the whole scene shifts they start doing stuff more like he was doing then and then that then he's doing like real funky stuff totally different again upsetting people who you know wanted to put him in the you know first he's like into into bop and then he's into cool jazz he can and then they love that then he's suddenly doing things like you know bitches brew which is just you know wild kind of improvisatory yeah. electric stuff and at every stage he irritated his fans and critics because he was moving ahead all the time i like that so you know i i don't want to play to the you know to that so th that's a very i'm not actually digressing that, that uh, that's directly applicable to uh what category do i write in i don't know i mean to me sure if we define classical music that has an internal consistency and integrity and uh, the patterns are chosen for consistency and expression, of course, my music is classical. I don't, you know, I don't know how to yeah. define classical. It's not a, it's not music that was written, you know, after the Baroque it's, it's a way of, of composing. So, you know, I've been accused of being a new age player, a crossover, maybe it's not quite so bad. I mean, in terms of, because it was usually used in a pejorative sense, oh, new age. But they couldn't hear right. what I was doing with the music when I, even when I wrote simplistic stuff, they didn't really hear it was in there, and that's that's their problem, you know, because it's there. Yeah, right. So you know, right. I, I learned long ago to just absolutely ignore the opinions of others. I really have no interest in what anybody thinks. I'm pleased when they are, you know, respond um, emotionally in a positive way to my music when it means something to them. That's valuable to me. Yeah, but the opinions of some someone about my music or any music, I'm I'm pretty indifferent to. I just have no interest in that because I find I don't find that very enriching yeah. to think about. Yeah. So so categories are a problem that way. Sure, I don't know. I, I I would call it living classical, you know, because I'm you know writing it now, and it's also alive in the fact that I'm not trying to do something that's already been done and just keep it in that pocket. You know what I mean? A lot of, there are people that are conservative that way. They try to write in the style, they keep it that way. Right. Like some jazz players now, they kind of, if you hear them play, it could be 1956, like the way they play and they yeah. kind of, that's the way they play, but it's not 1956. Right. So, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily knocking them. Some of their fantastic players but i don't find that necessarily creative in a way of developing a style i find it in a way that will ultimately wither it and i think that's why classical guitar is popular as it is <clears throat> why it hasn't moved forward enough and actually is declining in some ways because there's a conservative element that wants to keep it playing the same music that Segovia was playing in the 40s, things like that. Well, that's that's a death knell for the instrument. You can't do that. Yeah. As much as you may think it's important, that's actually the wrong approach because at that time, that was a creative period and new music was being created, even if it was just arrangements or discovery of music that had been written for guitar. But to freeze it there makes no sense. Yeah, right. So I use I use influences, you know, from reggae to rock <clears throat> to bluegrass. To baroque. I mean, I, I I blend all that stuff, you know, 
especially Renaissance, medieval, and Baroque, I blend that kind of writing with modern elements. And I think it makes it very stylistically relevant. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. in terms of you know uh, uh just i don't know life lessons you know when it comes to being a musician and an artist is what i hear what i hear you saying overall is uh you know to kind of just be yourself and and not not try to you know f- fashion or fit yourself into some mold because you're you're worried about getting uh, kudos or or anything else you know I, we talk about that occasionally on the show and just you know the idea of the individuality and, and uh, originality and how important that is in terms of uh, uh, full, a sense of fulfillment, I think, just being able to live your life and feel like you're, you're accomplishing that for yourself and that you don't, you're not trying to adhere to some kind of, uh, you know, rules or, or expectations by other people. Um, so I think it's great to hear you say that kind of stuff. Yeah, well put. That's uh I, I mean, be yourself, of course. I mean, who else can you really be? Yeah. But the, I mean, the problem is many people don't know how to be themselves because they don't know what they really want. What interests me is <clears throat> I, I realized a long time ago that I could watch a performer on stage and I could see what their intent was, like what was in their mind, you know, what was important to them. And it's a variety of things, of course. I mean, there's not that, not that there's anything wrong with any of them. You know, some want to entertain. They just want the attention to entertain. And that's okay. Yeah. You know, some are just very, very like childlike and just want just attention. They don't even care if they entertain. They just want just like to be noticed and do outrageous things technically or whatever. Then there's some that, you know, they want to communicate something, what they find valuable. And then there's some that are just, it's like a meditation for them. I'm more that regard. It's like, you know, it's, I want to be there in the moment with the music, sharing something that people, you know, can hear or not. It's up to them. All I can do is offer it the things I find beautiful, but it's funny to watch people on stage or some, you know, some younger players, they're there because their parents made them study and you can see they play like crazy. They're great. And they will not be playing in five to 10 years because they're going to realize they don't really want to do that, but they haven't learned it yet. So, you know, you just, you can see all of these things at play. So in there, when you figure out how to be yourself, you know, sometimes when guitarists learn how to be themselves, they stop playing. Sometimes they keep playing and play for a different reason. But, uh, you know, it's it's all fine. But, you know, there are a lot of illusions out there in people's minds about why they play and right. why they pretend to play, you know. So, yeah. 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 Well, that's what it's kind of what I try to break through some with, you know, on the show is to try to get through some of that that BS and have people be, you know, a little more mindful of their intent and and you know what they're what they're after. I wonder if we could switch gears now, maybe talk a little bit about um well we can segue into some some things about, you know, technology and the music industry and and work our way into um, your your new thing you got going on called Andrew's Den. Um, I'm wondering first if um, we could talk a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on, you know, how how things have changed over the years in terms of how people release music, not just see not just their their recorded music, but you know, you being a composer, you know, all the publishing that comes along with it. Um, you know, you you've uh, you've had a nice extensive career where you've seen, you've been able to kind of witness a, a number of changes over the years. Um, I'm wondering, like, have you taken advantage of any of those kinds of changes? Do you, you know, when it comes to releasing music 
or you know digital printing and digital publishing those kinds of things and do you agree with any of it well i I take advantage of all of them you know as i try to uh be on i I try to find the crests of these waves and i don't always make it you know sometimes you realize like a year later like oh that's what they're doing i wish i (laughs) could have been in the front of that but you know especially my wife and i now we're really watching and you know the way things are going in the music industry uh especially releasing music and yeah it's like it's changing so fast now but the thing is it's always changed i mean if you think back in beethoven's time the way you put music out there were no recordings you had to publish it right so publishers had a huge amount of power that's the only way you could disseminate music and then you know gradually you know recording became possible there were edison cylinders and they quickly you know went away and became you know these very brittle discs you know 78s and then the technology very pretty quickly went to you know long playing records that lasted for a long time then reel to reel tape came and then then the internet and then you know digital got fast enough to use and that accelerated the change so it's nothing new it's just the internet has accelerated it and made also just an like an exponential explosion of possibilities and killed a lot of the streams that were going you know certain avenues closed sure. rather severely and that's natural yeah um so it is what it is you just got to try and figure out how to deal with it and, and you know if you don't you don't survive that and you start doing something else and if you do you can find like where it's going kind of get on that train and use it to your advantage, then you can perhaps find a way to, to, you know, continue in the industry. But yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of that. I mean, in the early days with the LA guitar quartet, you know, we had major record deals and that, that has no meaning anymore unless they're like some, you know, like a huge pop star, then you ally yourself with a label because they, they can do things that make you even more rich and famous. But right. for your regular musician, you don't need, in fact, a record label would be a detriment for you. So, you know, people release themselves, which you can do in the Spotify, on the uh, streaming services and like Spotify has become a big player right. and CD baby allows anybody to release anything on all the streaming services for almost no money. Right. Um, you know, it's incredible. So yeah, it's just, that's changed so much. So, you know, recording with, with Sony, for example, I, you know, records for Sony classical, for Sony classical in New York and also in Japan. But that's meaningless now. I mean, I still once in a while will do something like that, but very limited the way the contract is set up. I can't give them any rights. There's no point. There's no, it's not worth it. So, <laughs> yeah. So basically, everything I control, everything I do, I got all my publishing rights back, almost all, 99%. And I publish it all myself. I have my own publishing company. You know, we have a record label, which is just for releasing my music, you know, yeah. that we do directly to the streaming services. So just, you know, consolidating and controlling all that and learning how to use the platforms to do it, to market it and reach the fan base. Yes, it's just the way it is now. You have to spend a lot of time with a computer, you know, doing all the stuff, uh, using the technology now to disseminate your music and, and to market it. Sure, sure. And so when it comes to, um, you know, teaching and providing uh, more access, I think, for for people in term, you know, meaning like getting, getting to actually see you and, and interact with you, uh, on certain levels, you know, the internet has just, just made this in, incredibly, you know, possible in a way that even wasn't a bit, you know, optional 15, 20 years ago, you know, I, I, I'm pointing that out because, um, growing up when I was, when I was a little younger, especially as a student was before the internet. And, um, you know, it was like, it was this kind of air of mystery of trying to figure out where these composers or these guitarists were and how, how, you know, you could get in touch with them if they would even, if they yeah. were even like, if you could even contact them and, you know, even just yeah. like, like the, I remember being able to, uh, I think it was, uh, I was probably the late nineties or early two thousands. I bought your, uh, your publication of the uh, the jazz for classical cats, and I remember right. uh, I remember just like being so excited when that showed up, and like oh my god, you know, I got this in a felt, you know, the tangible product in my hand, and you know, this like it seemed to come from you know magic land. I didn't know where it came from, and here it is now. But now, you know, and I'm not knocking it, but now we're just everything's available and everything yeah. is is instant. But at the same time, 
it has helped us be able to connect better with people. And I remember being a grad student and being able, like, just sort of taking the risks or chances of like, I wonder if I could, for my paper, get in touch with so-and-so. And I would just send an email and a week later, I'd hear back from them. It just completely blew my mind that I could actually <laughs> yeah. do that, right? Um, right? And so, you know, you're you're a high-profile artist and you're offering a, now a, a, a very cool platform that I think, is, I think it's cool is, you know, this thing Andrew's Den. Um, and it's, it's, again, it's this thing where, you know, it's, you're instantly accessible in a way where, um, where 20 years ago, no one could even think of that kind of, kind of thing. You know what I mean? I'm wondering like, um, what, what, do you have any thoughts about that, that kind of concept? Well, you know, video su subscription services are becoming more and more common. This is like, you know, I'm not on the necessarily on the curve of that. They're they're out there and they're becoming more and more more of them all the time. Yeah. So, but I've been wanting to do this for a couple of years. We just didn't have the time to do it um, because it takes a lot of preparation and you know technical knowledge and everything. If you do it most of it yourself, I mean, so we shoot the videos here. My my wife is a great video editor, and uh, you know, I have to come up with the content and we have to, you know, set up all the lighting and all this you know, cameras. Sure. So it's technical. And then of course, creating the subscription website and all that stuff. So, you know, we just launched it less than a week ago and it's already going very well, but I wanted to do it because, uh, when I started teaching at Fullerton with Cal State Fullerton with Mar Martha Masters you know, four and a half years ago or so, um, <clears throat> it was a great experience. You know, I really learned as much teaching the students as they learned from me it was and it, it helped me kind of uh codify how to do this on a regular basis i was used to teaching master classes where i'd come in it's like a strafing run you you know you sit with someone you find some issues that you think you can help them with and try to open their minds a little bit and i'm really good at that but I was wondering about if you meet with someone every week, you know, what do you talk about every week? But it turns out it's no different. You just work on things. There's always stuff. And uh, the analogies that you come up with to teach, the way you look into someone's mind and what's, you know, causing their blocks or, you know, their abilities not to shine forward. And I thought this would be great. I should do this on as a video subscription service. And I've got... Uh, a, a depth of knowledge and other styles and things that most people don't have. I mean, I love to improvise. So I'm doing a whole series on improvisation. There are not many classical guitarists that do that well. Yeah. So this I'm going to really deal with. I, I improvise every day. I love to do this. And as a composer, of course, I'm going to do an entire series on composition. Because of my jazz playing, my fingerboard knowledge is way above even good classical players. I mean, the, the harm, this, you know, the, uh, extended shapes that I'm very comfortable with. And, you know, even when I'm playing Bach, it's all quite familiar in terms of analysis, in terms of the shapes and things like that. So I, I'm going to do a, a pretty beginning to advanced series of fingerboard knowledge, which most classical players need desperately. Yeah. Um, as well as, you know, teaching my pieces, because um, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of stuff in the pieces that people aren't aware of. And I'm laying it out in Andrew's Den. When I like, here's how you play, you know, equations of beauty. Each each movement, I'll go through, do multiple lessons. Here's the inner lines. Here's why I wrote that. Here's the overall form and why that happens here. And here's what you want to look out for. And bring out this inner voice here that you don't even know is there. Hear it now. And then, and also then technical, how do you play it? Like here's here's a good fingering that I use. You know, this just all this stuff. And this is people are already responding really favorably to that. So there's so many streams within. Andrew's Den, you know, from playing my pieces to fingerboard knowledge, they're all, all going to be coming out. Um, I just I just released one uh, yesterday uh, called Brain Plasticity and Finger uh, Finger Independence. Huh. So you know, because I'm using science is I've done one uh, one on the harmonic series where I actually used mathematical software to graph the vibrations of the string in its constituent harmonics. And then sum together as the string actually vibrates and explain, you know, how that works and, you know, this kind of stuff. So it's going to be just, I think this is the kind of stuff that only I could offer because of my background. <laughs> right, right. So that's right. what, this is, this is what I want to do now. That sounds great. It's very, very unique experience. And it sounds like they're, you know, subscribers are going to be able to get some, 
very, uh, you know, insightful knowledge that you were, you're just talking about, you know, with your, your compositions and, uh, um, is this a monthly, a monthly subscription, annual subscription, something like that? Both. You can choose, choose you know, one. a discount and you get some scores if you do that annual, but that's, that's the way we set it up now. It, I mean, it's all very new. Like I said, it's been only been out for, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just one week. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I got the, uh, I got the notice, <laughs> the notification. Um, but yeah, no, yeah. I, think that's, I, think, I think that's what prompted me to, to reach out to you. Cause it's, I thought, you know, this is perfect for, for where, you know, where we are today with <laughs> everything's happening right now online. You know, we're in the middle of this, uh, this insane crisis with the, uh, with the coronavirus and a bit historic, right. But it's, it's also seems to be an opportune time to really get, um, you know, we've got, now we're going to be doing everything online for a, a while. At least a lot of us are. And, uh, I think it was a great, great timing. And uh, if that makes any sense at all, great timing <laughs> to yeah, have your, well, you know, fortuitous in out. a way, you know, certainly yeah. didn't plan that, but, um, I mean, I'm glad that gives, cause some people have already, you know, messaged me about it to some of the subscribers saying, wow, this is, I'm sitting at home now I've got more time and this is fantastic. You know, the right. couple, a couple of the yearly subscribers within, like three or four days, I said, I feel like I've already got my money's worth for the year, just the stuff I've seen already. You know, it's like, so they're just so pleased. They said, there's so much, you know, in there. Yeah. And of course, I'm going to continue every week. We're going to release new videos. We're really having fun filming them. And, you know. Yeah, that's great. So are you, I, I had a student uh, come down there, I think last year and did a, did a workshop, a, I think a composition workshop or something with you. Are you still going to be doing that? Or is this, are you pretty much switching gears to this? Yeah, I did that for four years with my friend, Alex Degrassi. I'm not doing it this year. Of course, who knows if it's even happening this year, but right. no, this summer I was supposed to go play concerts in Italy and Spain, oh. which is obviously not going to happen. And then go yeah. to Japan after that. And I don't think that's going to, basically all the touring has evaporated, you know, with the coronavirus. So it's very, very odd time. Yeah. And I, you know, I really enjoy touring and playing for people live. There's an experience that you can't get on the internet right. hearing somebody live. It's just not the same. Right. Uh, as much as a millennial will tell you it is watching a video, it's not. I mean, you got it when you hear somebody live, it's there's a presence there and a power that the screen and the compressed sound will not convey. But anyway, that's all gone. I don't know how, how long or it will be before any semblance of normalcy will, will reappear for that. I don't know. It's just a. It is a very, very strange and troubling time in a way. We don't know where all this is going to go and how it's going to unfold, but, you know, wish everybody the best. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, Andrew York, I, I really appreciate you taking the time today. It's uh, It's been a wonderful conversation. I'm wondering where where can people officially find out about Andrew's Den and even just uh, what else you have going on? Andrewsden.com. Just Google it and it, it comes up immediately. Um, but, yeah, that I'd appreciate them checking it out. I'm very, really proud of it. It's, it's exciting for me. It's another creative outlet to, at this age, you know, now I feel really good about pouring my knowledge into this stuff and making it available. You know, that's, that's kind of my new job now, you know, yeah. not teaching at a university. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to reach a larger group of people and, and just have this stuff kind of a repository archive, this knowledge that I've accrued over many decades make it available. Awesome. Well, wish you the best of luck, man. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Jeff. It's a real pleasure. Enjoyed the conversation.